0: Hi again, everyone. John Porteus of the Lovells Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. Hey, welcome back. A um, lot of fun for you uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, relative to the podcast. Um, so, from a. Uh, we've, we've been blessed with a bunch of guests, and I think what we're going to do instead of uh, slotting these out only on Fridays, I think we'll probably go to two a week. Um, for a couple of three weeks, and uh, that way we won't be dragging things out into the uh, into November, into deer season, and uh, uh, Richard and I can go out uh, with Glenn and uh, the dogs and uh, go play in the woods a little bit. So uh, this week, and on that note, um, our guest is Del Whitman. Del is a master gunsmith, gun fitter, bird hunting guide, shotgun aficionado, Technically trained, just a really fun guy, and, and he'll introduce his background a little more when we get into it. But um, I think you're going to enjoy this, and uh, we'll look forward to some other uh, uh, conversation on the other end of the interview. So hang in, and we'll get started right now.
1: And I am with Dell Whitman, a gunsmith from Traverse City. Dell one of the uh that I know of, or I've heard of, gunsmiths around, so we're uh, privileged to have him here
2: with us on the uh, broadcast. Uh, Dell, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, Delbert Whitman, Jr., and I'm a full-time professional gunsmith in the Traverse City, Lake In area of the Lower Peninsula of Michigan, and um, I've been a professional gunsmith my whole career, and um, for the past, well, since I moved to Michigan in about 2000, and... Three, um, I've pretty much specialized in repair and restoration on shotguns, mainly you know wing shooting and target guns and upland guns. And I do, like I said, repair, restor- repair restoration, uh, customizing a lot of stock making and also a lot of uh, stock alterations and gun fitting stuff. Uh, primarily what I do. So basically, uh, bird guns and target guns, target shotguns is what I what I mainly work on. And I'm also a pretty avid uh, bird hunter as well. That's kind of my main sporting uh, passion is is upland bird hunting. So, well,
3: and, and, more. And, bird, Here we are. and bird dogs. It, I. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, as we were discussing before the podcast, I, I'm a little bit, uh, I've had some, some family issues with my wife having a foot injury that has kind of uh, um, curtailed some of my typical travel in the month of October, but I'm... I'm still getting out and having some fun. So there we
3: go. So, well, Del, I part of the naive question, but how does one uh, decide that they're going to be a gunsmith? What what led you down that path?
2: Well, it, it so so I, my dad was an industrial arts, a high school industrial arts teacher, and and this was you know this was back in the nineties, you know, late eighties nine or, you know, early nineties when, you know, a lot of the industrial arts departments were still real industrial arts departments and, in you know, high school facilities. And so I kind of grew up in a wood and a metal shop. And, um, you know, my dad was a very avid woodworker and a craftsman. And when I was in high school, you know, in junior high and high school, we always, uh, fished and hunted more more hunted than fished so that you know the the outdoors and outdoors are activities were always a huge part of my life i was also in the boy scouts and spent a lot of time you know doing outdoor things at the boy scouts and as i got into high school I really liked i liked math and hard sciences a lot i also started kind of uh, shooting competitively in high school and you know, in my junior and senior year, I was really thinking about what I wanted to do. And I, I, you know, a, a, a four-year college just didn't feel right at the time, and community college didn't feel right. And then I started looking I started looking around, and there was a, uh, interestingly, I was around from southern Minnesota, and one of the best gunsmithing programs in the country was in Pine City, Minnesota, which is north of the Twin Cities, about two hours from, from where I grew up and i went there and kind of you know pre college toured the facility and and uh looked at the program and i mean at that time i had no idea what type of gunsmith i was going to be or you know what my disciplines were going to be but it just seemed interesting you know it was it was affordable and it was a you know it was an accredited minnesota tech college so so i went to gunsmithing school uh i started right out of right out of high school and when I was there, one of the professors that was there in the, the department for, and he was only, he was there for a very short period of time, but he was, a uh, he lived in Wisconsin at the time, but he was originally from Minnesota and he was a, a fine custom gunsmith slash gun maker. And he was the guy who kind of took me aside and said, Hey, you know, if you're going to be a gunsmith, you don't want to be changing parts on eight seventies or, you know, working on auto loading handguns or stuff like that. He said, you know, if you've, if if you have some talent, which it seems you do, you want to work on fine guns, and you know, having him point me that in that direction, and already having been, you know, uh, you know, shooting competitive shotgun shooting, both in in high school, and then of course the the college had a team. It just that was just kind of the path that I went, um, and then right out of right out of college, I ended up working for a company that made uh, handmade double rifles and shotguns um john rigby and company so i did that for the better part of well just just shy of it was about five years four and a half five years and um anyway i wanted to get back to the midwest and i you know through through this that and the other thing i ended up out here in michigan so i don't know if that answered answered your question
1: Oh, that's uh, that's
3: that's so an
1: awesome but, path. Do you uh, actually fabricate? Can you fabricate parts for vintage
2: uh, guns and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's that's actually when I say repair and restoration, that's a lot of what I do. So, um, you know, for a lot of these handmade British guns and continental European guns, especially, you know, they were never machine-made guns. So, if a sear breaks, or a mainspring breaks, or a cocking dog breaks, or something like that, you, you know, I, I just have to be able to make one from scratch and and i was trained with a lot of hand tools so i can make a lot of that stuff with you know just a drill press and hacks on files but i do have a full machine shop too i've got a, a full size lathe and a full size milling machine so i've got some some pretty good machining capacity
1: but you uh um, are you able to stay busy with all that or are you... yeah yeah i there, you i'm be...
2: i'm a, yeah it's Actually, like the you know, that's one of the toughest parts of pretty much the toughest part of my business is is just managing clients and deadlines and timelines. There's there are not a lot of people. I mean, I'm 46, and I'm the youngest guy who does this work that I know, um, by a long shot. So, and there's just there's there's a demand for it. There's also a lot of demand too recently with kind of the reemergence of a lot of the younger sh- shooters getting into side by side guns and custom fit guns, there's 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 a lot of demand there too. So I'm doing more and more um, gun fitting and stock making and stock alterations as well.
1: So if you wanted a length of pole adjusted or uh, a on a stock or something like that, you that'd be right up your alley, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah, I do a lot of stock alterations. I do high do stock bending, a lot of rec- I mean I can do all all the different forms of butt coverings from leather covered reco pads to, to horn um you know a lot of a lot of nice checkered butts and wood butt plates and then also the any of the synthetic recoil pads somebody wants to do so
1: well well i like double guns and a5 so <laughs> we may have to talk we're,
2: here well we're, we're actually pretty similar there because my the the first gun i ever had that was a halfway decent gun was a um was a four serial number light 12 a5 I, 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 my folks got me from that from a gun store in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota when I was 16. I still have that gun and take it out and shoot it a couple times a year. So, and
1: yeah, folks, for for guys, something that, that happened in the junkyard, yeah. ready to shoot again. You know, that's right.
2: Well, yeah. I find you know, guys. I mean, you've never seen me, but I'm I'm pretty short and stocky, and I shoot a lot of cast. And I find that. Interestingly, a lot of guys that are built like me end up gravitating towards A5s because because of that the, that action style they shoot like they've got a lot more cast than they do. Yeah. So if you you know if you if you're built like you know if you're if you're short in stock you need a lot of cast and when you're young you kind of stumble upon one of those A5s, you usually kind of stick with them.
1: So yeah, I got a couple Belgian Bounce 60s, and I really like them. They're great, they're neat. Yeah,
3: really. Dylan, when somebody knocks on your door or calls to make an appointment for a, for a gun fitting, what, what what is kind of the the protocol of the process? What, what would somebody want to be prepared to go through?
2: So, what the gun? So my gun fittings are, are what we refer to as like a classic British style sixteen yard tri gun gun fitting. So so how the gun fittings layout is you'd come to the shop and either, depending on the weather, either in the shop or outside of the shop, um, I go through a very brief uh, instructional uh, period. And that's, there are a few very basic yet very quintessential aspects of shooting that you kind of have to have ironed out in order for the fitting to work well. And these are very, very basic things like, I mean, uh, things like, proper stance as far as how you're uh, aligning your body towards the line of the target, uh, being weight forward and having a a proper gun mount and proper head placement on the the stock. And those things are, you know, I I never want to change somebody's style. I want to change somebody's style as little as possible during a gun fitting because I, I want what we do at the gun fitting plate to reflect what you're doing in the field. But those few basic things are are extremely important for any style. So you have to have those things ironed out, regardless if you're doing a, a, a classic Chilean instinctual shooting, or if you're doing pre-mounted American ski. You know, you still have to be doing those 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 precursor technique things properly. So we go through that, and that takes it. it I, I make it sound much more complicated than it is, but that's maybe 15 minutes and from there um, we start practicing the gun mount and at that time i'm assessing length of pull at the same time we're kind of making sure that your gun mount is there and once we get the length of pull rough set then i'll start to do what i call the dry fit portion of the gun fitting and that's so so i should say too that i'm using a gun. so the gun is a is a side-by-side shotgun that has a fully articulated stock So I can move it up and down for drop. I can move it side to side for cast. I can rotate it for toe in and toe out. And the it's articulated at the wrist. And also the comb is articulated back by the heel. So I can not only change the I can not only change the drop. um, Think of it being like on a swing arm. I can change the drop like a seesaw. So I can move it up and down parallel and front to back. So I can, I can affect the drop at face and the comb angle all at the same time. And if, somebody needs a Monte Carlo, I can, I can set up a Monte Carlo type stock. So, so anyway, at that point I'm using the tri gun and I'm, I'm adjusting it and essentially changing the physicality of the stock to get close to what I think your dimensions are. Um, and at that time too, I'm assessing, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I do where I'm watching the client mount the gun repetitively, that you know i'm looking at that the client isn't necessarily aware of so i'm kind of looking i'm starting to look for any eye dominance issues
3: um and that type of stuff yeah so yeah are you are, are you just kind of observing this uh with the barrel over your shoulder type of thing so that you're looking into the uh client's eyes or
2: All, all, all the above. I'll, I'll look at, you know, when I'm doing, when I'm doing the dry fit portion, um, I'm looking at a bunch of things. Like I'm I'm starting to look at how the toe is sitting in the shoulder pocket. You know, is it high? Is it low? Do I need to change the pitch? Um, I'm looking at the shooter from the back, trying to make see if they've got their head positioned properly on the stock. And then there is a portion where I'll have the shooter, Open the gun up. We both look down the gun. We recognize that it's empty. I close the gun, so I know there's no cartridges in it. Then I hand hand the client the gun, and he'll point the gun. Essentially, you know, using my right eye as the focal point for where he's he's looking down the barrels, and and then I can look straight down the bores, and I can see is he canting the gun. I can see his iris placement over the rib. Um, a lot of times, that's when I'll start to notice if there's eye dominance issues. Um, and and that sort of thing. So we'll, we'll go through that. And, and I, I also, too, you know, because I'm, because I'm, you know, started doing gun fittings because I'm a stockmaker, and from a manufacturing standpoint, my take is a little different than a lot of other gun fitters. Most gun fitters are instructors who start doing gun fittings as a part of their instruction. And I kind of come at it from the other way where I'm, you know, I'm making from scratch custom stocks. So I, I have a pretty pragmatic view of how we do gun fittings. And I also, I don't I don't have a, I'm not dogmatic about shooting style. You know, I don't have a Dell Whitman shooting technique that I feel everybody <laughs> needs to adhere to. You know, my, my again, my philosophy is to change what the client's doing. You know, as long as they've got a decent gun mount and they're doing things consistently, I don't want to change anything because I know if I change something, you know, i i i can alter how you mount that gun during a hour and a half gun sitting and you're just gonna revert back to your old style as soon as you go home and start shooting and we've accomplished nothing, you know. So
3: The old so muscle again, I'm, take over.
2: Yes, the, uh, exactly. So
3: So yeah, yeah When so you're doing, you that, drill, Bill, do you, do you send clients home with drills and say, I, you I, know, let's let's keep the momentum here or something like that?
2: And I actually, when I have, when I talk to clients pre-gun uh, gun fitting, I will recommend that they do some some practice gun mounts, some practice gun mount drills, you know, really simple stuff that kind of uh, starts building some of the muscle memory that's um, necessary during the gun fitting. And there's a couple of good books out there, too. There's, there's a, gun, a gun fitter instructor who's, who's actually a friend of mine named Chris Batha, and he's written a book called Breaking Clays. And I, re- I recommend that to almost all my clients be- specifically because of what you just said in that book. I mean, I couldn't do it better. You know, in that book he describes practice drills for doing consistent gun mounts, which are, which are exactly what I tell my clients to do and that they're very well described. So, so yes, there, there is a prescription. The the more consistent your gun mount is coming into a gun fitting, the, the better results we'll have at the end. Um, so, so once we get done with the dry fit, then we move, and once we're basically comfortable, like we're 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 within the realm of reason, right? Then we go down to the patterning plate. So out, you know, you walk out the door of my shop and past one of my little barns, and you go down to my this little field. It's about 50 yards, and the, and I've got a a covered. It, it's basically like a, a a a quite large garden shed that has an awning where the doors open up and make a windbreak. And my patterning plate is a steel plate that's sixteen yards away It's a very specific number we use so it's it's sixteen yards from the shooter, and the center of the target is about it's about seven feet to the center off the ground and I'll you know i I'll go over the gun mount and the procedure for shooting at the plate again, and then we start shooting what I refer to as as a series, and a series consists of the client shooting anywhere from two to four, two to five shots at a given point of aim. So there's, there's little, there's little six inch dots painted on the plate. Okay. And on my, on my big plate, my big plate is a full sheet of sheet, uh, a a full sheet of sheet metal. It's quarter inch sheet metal. So I can put three of those on there. I have a portable plate that I use that I'll take to to events. If somebody wants to schedule me to, to travel to an event and do gun fittings where it's just, it's three by three. So I just have one dot in the center of that, but they'll take a series of shots at that dot and I'm assessing their gun. You know, I'm assessing their gun mount and how they're mo- you know, moving and mounting the gun. And then they've got a, you know, consistency varies with every shooter, but we can kind of tell on average where your impact point is on the plate in relation to the, you know, the center or the target with those stock dimensions. So then I'll go through and I'll alter, the stock i'll make adjustments to the drop or the cast or the pitch or the comb angle and then we shoot another series so i'm i'm looking at the the average of the the impacts you know where that's where that center of mass is to where we want to be which is obviously the 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 target we're shooting at and i'll make alterations until we we move the impact point around to it's where we want it which is typically either you know perfectly right 50-50 right to left and then you know a lot of times my clients will want their guns to shoot a little high so maybe like a 70-30 or a 60-40 pattern um and again you can see how during that process the 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 client's proficiency and consistency at gun gun mounting and gun handling is pretty important um, oh. you know the the more the more consistency we have during the fitting equals you know, me having better data to make judgments on as far as how to, how to alter the stock. So
3: are you choking the shotgun in any particular way during a fitting session?
2: Yeah, my, my gun's quite tightly choked. And that's just because I want the, I want the feedback to be as precise as it can be. Like my, my tri gun, it's, it's basically my tri gun's a, it's a BC Maruku frame and barrels and that, actually like it's pretty much the same as like a browning bss so just and you know i specifically got that gun for that purpose because they're tanks they're extremely durable obviously this gun's going to get a you know takes a lot of abuse a lot of shooting and a lot of handling sure. um and and that gun came choked uh full and light full and that's the way it still is because you know at at 15 yard or at 16 yards where we shoot that pattern out of that gun is probably about it's, it's, the it's, it's about the size of a basketball. It's not a little smaller. Yeah. And, and that's done purposely because I want, I want a pretty, you know, a pretty small, uh, a pretty precise notion of where that pattern is. And I have to tell my clients that sometimes too, like they're shooting and, and it, you know, that pattern is, uh, looks like it uh, might be off an inch or so, or it's quite a, quite large at 15 yards. And I have to remind them and say, you know, that's a, that's a light full choke at 15 yards. You know, if you're shooting at a grouse at 20 yards with a skeet or a cylinder, it's it's going to look a lot different, you know. Right. So, and, and how many of those series we do, it varies. I mean, if, if somebody's got an incredibly consistent gun mount, and I'm pretty lucky with how I set the dimensions initially, sometimes it might only take two series, maybe even one series. Sometimes if there's if there's issues with gun mount that have to be ironed out or a little eye dominancy anomaly or something like that, it might take five or six or seven series. It just depends. It's kind of you know each each gun fitting there's a little bit of a puzzle, you know, depending on the client's proficiency and and um, you know how exact they want to be and if they have any pre predetermined notions about how they want their guns to fit and that sort of thing. So.
3: Well, yeah. There's no shortage of variables, from what it sounds like. It's amazing.
2: No, there,
3: <laughs> there is there is no shortage of variables. Stuff into uh, an end result. The um, when in in Delhi, maybe we should have touched this early on. But the when when folks walk out of a sporting goods store with an off the rack gun, if you will.
2: It, it, it,
3: the opportunity is there that that gun may not fit them, you know. You, you were mentioning your your shorter stock, your guy. Um, that carries some challenges versus a, a slender guy.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's it's like it's like anything else. If you're you know if 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 you're a man and you're six, you're you're between five, ten. And six feet tall, and you weigh 180 pounds, and you've got about a 32-inch inseam, you know, <laughs> and you're right eye dominant, and you're right-handed. Pretty much every factory-made gun you pick up at your local sporting goods store is going to come pretty close to fitting you, you know. Um, <laughs> right? If you're if you're Joe average, that's that's what manufacturers shoot for. But if you're someone like me, you know, who's who's short and stocky, or you're a very you know, if you're a 130-pound guy that's 5'6 and real wiry, you know, guys like me and that guy, we've never picked a factory gun up that really fit us. You know, well,
1: uh, what's um, the, uh, you know if a guy goes into a story, you know, what is probably one of the best or the uh, the thing that needs adjusted most on these guns? The length of pole I would imagine. Uh, yeah,
2: I mean, it. You know, it's one of those things where it's, you want your gun to fit you as well as it can. So, you know, the ideal is to always have all the dimensions right. But initially, really, um, length of pull and drop are the two big ones. And there's 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 directions you want the margin for error to go. So if, you know, you want your length of pull pretty close, because length of pull really has a drastic effect on where, you place your head on the stock. In fact, that's kind of the biggest determining factor of length of pull. But the other thing is you don't want your gun to have too much drop because you don't want it to shoot low. Right. And that's, you know, if I go through a gun fitting and I, and I have a question like, well, I could maybe make it this number or a little bit higher. I'm always going to uh error for the gun to be higher because when we're bird hunting, most everything's moving up a little bit in one way or the other. So somebody, if a gun is an eighth inch too high, you're going to, you can probably shoot that gun okay. If a gun's eighth inch too low, you're probably not going to shoot that gun very well at all because you'll be shooting, you know, you'll be looking at the back of the receiver and shooting, you know, underneath everything, right? And, and that goes back to when I say like a lot of my clients will actually have me set their guns up. So they purposely do shoot artificially high a little bit, you know, especially for guys that shoot a lot of prairie birds, um, you know, where everything's going up and away. Typically I've had guys that'll, that want me to shoot, set their guns up, you know, 89 or excuse me, uh, 80% high, you know, 80% of the pattern above and 20% below the line of, the, you know the, the point of aim so yeah so anyway back to what you were saying you you really need to get the length of pull right and then the second one i would look at is drop and you want to make sure that that it's where it should be or and if you've got to make a mistake make a mistake with it being high and after that cast is important too but um you know and cast is one of those things too where if you're a right-handed shooter right eye dominant and you need three-eighths of cast at the heel or at the, you know, let's say you need three-eighths at the heel, which is what I need. I'm going to shoot a quarter okay. So is, so your first concern is, like, is it going in the right direction at all? And if it is, that's good. And then you can say, well, it's going to be a lot better and ideal if I have all of it that I need. I
1: think the fall isn't that big a deal. I don't know about drop, but cast, I mean, you, that, that's – Fairly really significant work
2: on the stock, isn't it? It can be, yeah. And you know, it 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 can, it, it really it's really depends on on per you know every every gun is a little different. Like I have kind of a, a I wouldn't call it proprietary, but it's kind of a method that I use where I can I can alter through bolt over and under guns for cast pretty darn easily, and really? and the bends stick. I use uh I do a little proactive inlay. And and also hot oil bend them, but I'm I'm actually a lot of people have issues with over and under guns with through bolts because the bolt is always wanting to pull the stock back to center, and I I actually use you know like I said do some inletting and alter that the nature of that through bolt a little bit to where it's actually working in our advantage. It actually is pulling in the direction of the bend. So, so you
1: the where the wood fits the metal then.
2: Yeah. Yep. On um, as well as doing some bending. And and again, it's one of those things where every piece of wood is different. You know. Um, sure. I I'll I'll put a piece of wood in my in my stock bending uh, fixture. That's you know it's it's basically like a big L bracket that the that the whole gun is held in. And then there's a circulating system that circulates hot oil. And when I get that thing up to temperature, you know I I can tell pretty quick. You know some pieces of wood you get on and they they feel like they're they're nice and they're nice and rubbery, and you can just kind of you know that it's not going to be too big of a deal to push that thing over. And sometimes you get on one, and even though it's up to temp, it just you just you just kind of feel like this one does not want to yield. And um there's kind of a trick to that because you know you don't you don't want to you want to do your best not to damage a stock. And I I don't really have too much in, uh, problems with that. But I'm also very conservative with what I do. Like if I feel that a stock doesn't want to go, I'm not going to push on it. And I kind of let my clients know that right out the gate, where it's like, if you know, I'll try to get the most I can, but my default is going to be not breaking your stock in half. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, okay. I think bamboo rods, and some of the some of the stuff that comes in, you know, it's just really a pleasure to work with. And the other, I think it grew out of the Devil's Garden. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it, it, it's just not cooperative. Like, it's I know what,
3: what you mean. What secret yes. force does that yeah. come from? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and
2: two, the other thing that's super important is, you know, one of the things I assess right away is the grain layout through the head of the stock. And if, if you know, because I am applying, when I bend a stock, um, I am applying a great deal of pressure to the head of the stock. So I, I've i got to assess that. And I mean, if it's a really cross grained piece of wood, especially like on a side lock gun where they've got those, you know, they've got long, thin stock ears that aren't really well supported, you know, that go, you know, up around the top and down around the bottom of the lock plate. Um if if the if the grain is squirrely through those areas, that's a you know, that's where I have to tell a client, hey, I mean I can try this, but it's super high risk. Right. And you kinda you know.
1: So you uh you must work on a lot of high dollar uh vintage, great <laughs> stuff, huh?
2: I I work on I mean, I you know, having having worked for that British manufacturer, I, I work with quite a few British guys and I kinda and, and that's also like my personal interest too is i love the old handmade edwardian victorian period guns that that you know there's a level of craftsmanship there that's just almost non-existent anymore and um so yeah so i i do i do work on a lot of those and have a lot of those in the shop and um again those are those are the guns where if something breaks those parts almost almost completely have to be handmade
3: are you, so, pardon me if this is sacrilege, and I don't know. I'm assuming there are certain areas, and it's it's not going to be these finer collector guns. But are you able to? I don't know. Use any of the newer CNC technology to assist in some of those repairs. I I,
2: I do. I I can if I can do it in a way that's period, correct. I, I mean, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not somebody I love technology. And if, and if I can facilitate a repair that's going to be at the, at the, at the standard of craft that the original product was, I will absolutely use it. You know, and I'll tell you an example is, is uh, laser welding. Like that's a new technology. I, I shouldn't say it's new, but it it's really came a lot way, a long way even in the past decade. And, I mean, I, I have a, a couple of specialist laser welders that I use and, um, yeah, they've, they've changed, um, a lot of how I reaction guns. Um, and you know, when I say reaction, I mean like, uh, you know, putting guns back on face and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, again, if, if I can get to the, if I can, if I can do a period correct, you know, you know, uh. Level of craft appropriate repair. I'll use pretty much any technology that's out there. It's just the thing is, it's just that a lot of time, especially to, if it's a one-off situation, using a lot of mechanized equipment doesn't make sense. You know, financially to set any any type of digitized equipment right. up to make one one of something.
3: Right. So, that's pretty cool. But, though. Yeah. Good. That's it's it's amazing some of the stuff that's available now and and what it's capable of doing the you
1: know. um, Yeah.
3: With with yeah. Uh, yeah. With so so let's um let's transition a little bit. Um we're kind of uh, you know early days into our uh grouse and woodcock season. Um respecting that you do have some challenges with uh your wife's foot. Have you have you been out doing any recon or
2: yeah yeah i so knowing that that was coming up i had i took advantage of i tentatively planned a trip to north Dakota for tail and a hungarian partridge and i ended up going on that trip and that was just we had four full days on the ground and it was just a, just an amazing one of the better trips i've ever had um it was uh it was really nice and we got into a lot of birds and had some really good dog work it was fun because we were in an area where we were we were predominantly looking. We my my friend and I who went out we really wanted to try to get into some Huns and um, he had some air some areas that were well known to him that were predominantly sharp tail areas that were you know more of the classic um, rolling prairie with bluffs and buffalo berry bushes and you know you know kind of the wind swept knee length grass. Um, so we kind of had some spots like that, that that were known to us, but we were looking for more huns. So we we hunted for the first three days in an area that was transitional between more ag and that more traditional prairie. So it, we were hunting areas where it was, you know, wheat seed, canola, or excuse me, wheat, canola, and soybeans bordering some of this prairie um, looking for huns. And it was nice because we could kind of switch back and forth. We hunted three days in that cu- country, and we we did. Hunts are tricky, at least they are for me. I mean, they we we found a few. We found one small area that that were holding some birds. We really didn't have too much trouble finding sharp tails in that area. And then the last day, we switched over and hunted an area that was, you know, classic sharp tail cover. You know, big. Big windswept vistas and little little ridges and you know kind of little cul de sacs at the top of ridges um, and buffalo berries and and winterberry and all that type of good stuff. So and then I I got back from that trip on gosh it was Monday and then the following Thursday my wife had surgery so on her foot so um, I've just kind of been doing short quick local grouse and woodcock hunts here, you know, in uh, you know, in the traverse City area. So Sure.
1: Well the guys coming and into the lodge over the last we were pretty busy over the weekend with hunters last weekend and the reports coming back were really encouraging. Uh that uh as opposed to last year they're seeing a lot of grouse.
2: Yeah, I I'd say it's it's well I'm gonna I don't want to sound like a pessimist. It's uh I think our numbers here are, are definitely better than they were last year, but um, I, it still doesn't put it in a good category for me. You know, we've, in our little localized area here, we've been depressed for, you know, for almost three or four years now. We've kind of been on the lower end of what I would consider good hunting um, for grouse. Now we, we get pretty good woodcock numbers around here, and I really enjoy hunting woodcock, and, and you know i've got a three year old dog a three year old uh French Brittany who's finally starting to put some things together so i mean i I really enjoy you know getting him into a pile of woodcock and kind of getting him tuned up a little bit so That's and then fun. i've got a yeah i've got a six month old uh, field bred english cocker and he's he's got his game together and he's just a ball to hunt over so Yep. That's kind of the extent of it. Um
3: But you know, but later
2: in the season. Fairly
3: optimistic for when we get some leaves down then? I think so. And you know, for us over here
2: and I think it's like that over in the lodge, there is a big transition once the once we get a bunch of hard, you know, some consecutive really hard frosts and mm-hmm. a lot of the like the clover starts to die back a little bit. The the salad and the bugs Kind of go away, and once that happens, the birds are transitioning onto you know soft mass, which is going to be you know hazel, and you know autumn olive, uh wild raisin crab apples you know they basically they basically get turned onto the fruit that's still um, that's still on the you know the fruit that's still hanging, and then kind of usually at that time you're starting to see some pretty significant leaf drop and you know to my mind the birds make a big pivot in their behavior at that time so you know like right now you'll break up family groups but there's just there's just a lot of different stuff to eat everywhere right now you know
3: and in it the crab apples are like a bumper crop this year it's yeah every tree that i've seen has just been heavy with fruit
2: yeah i I've, i've killed a few birds and you know, they're still full of, I'm still finding a lot of bugs, a lot of grasshoppers. You know, we had a, I don't know what it was like over there, but we had kind of a, a strange biblical ty- type numbers of grasshoppers in my area this year. It was, it was pretty, I've seen it like this a few times, you know, and it's cyclic. But yeah, I mean, I, I, had, I had one grouse that was like, he had a few autumn olive berries and that he must've had a, a hundred grasshoppers in its crop, you know,
3: That's pretty wild. and
2: and I mean, they're they're not going to go if they can get that high protein, high calorie stuff from the insects. They're not going to turn on to the, you know, they're not going to hardcore right. be in the in the soft mass. So, but yeah,
3: Perfect. and, and yeah, I just I said all that. Cold. We definitely had the the hoppers were out in force this year, to be sure. So it's
2: like that for you guys too.
3: Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quite go and uh, try and match your biblical uh, description, but. Uh, <laughs> Which I do like. <laughs> well, I was,
2: so I was, I was training my, my dogs. I, I did a lot of conditioning before I went out west. So since I got back from a gunfitting trip to Minnesota like the first week of August, and I had him out every morning. And I've got a big, almost a full section hayfield back behind my house. And, you know, of course, my cocker's not real tall. And I could track his movements running through that hayfield by this halo of grasshoppers that was coming up wherever he was running.
1: <laughs> it was it was really Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So sci fi channel stuff, yeah.
3: Yeah, that that would have been kinda of cool to see. That that's when you need one of those drums and uh <laughs> the whole deal. Indeed. Well listen, as we as we um as people are getting ready to go out in the field, um any uh any checklist items uh, to, to pass along to listeners? Reminders. Hands H- for safety. Yeah, try, you know,
1: <laughs> know where
3: you are, know what you're doing,
1: or the guy you're fighting with. You know, you're not the vice president, you can't shoot. From there. <laughs> <Same>. uh,
2: <laughs> well, just you know, just just always be aware of good good old fashioned standard gun safety that everybody knows. I think one of the things that's important. You know, other than the classic keep your finger off the trigger, you know, and out of the trigger group and, you know, always treat a gun as if it was loaded and, you know, good, safe gun handling. The one thing I like to tell people to especially grouse hunters is just be aware of what's going on with your muzzle in the woods because there's, you know, as grouse hunters, we're hunting in a jungle. You know, there's so many obstructions from the ground all the way up to the tops of our heads you know you want to lead you want you obviously always want your muzzles up and pointing in a safe direction as far as you know horizontally but you always want to be able to see where they are and and not get them hung up on a branch or you know not be noticing and and get them caught on something and have the barrels be pushed back and kind of over your shoulder or away and then of course the the ubiquitous don't ever you know that's that's the one thing i always tell people especially if they're new to grouse and woodcock hunting specifically is especially early season you know you can't sometimes see where your friends are even if they're head to foot you know blaze orange right and the one thing that'll keep keep you out of trouble is just don't shoot low don't shoot low don't shoot low you know unless that bird's three feet above your head you you don't shoot at it and and then even if you do accidentally shoot over a friend which you know, we, we try to avoid that at all costs, but it does happen occasionally. You, you know, if you don't shoot low, you're not going to get involved with somebody who's out there 75 yards or heaven forbid a dog or something like that. Uh, yeah. um, other, than, other than that, I, you know, two things I say about gun care, especially for being in the field with grouse hunting, is grouse hunting is really bad because there's just so much foreign material getting in your gun. You know, because you're, you know, it's not like being on the prairie when you're walking around in knee or waist length grass all the day. You know, there's leaves, there's pine needles, there's just garbage getting in, you know, getting in you and your gun constantly. So you want to be aware of making sure your gun just isn't full of debris. And that means, you know, sweeping out, cleaning out the, you know, if you're shooting an autoloader or a pump, you know, know how to drop the trigger group and get the get the stuff out of the interior of the action if it's a double gun, you know, always make sure you're cleaned out underneath the ejectors and inside the action. Um, and then, so just make sure your gun is free of debris. And the other thing is too, is, 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 and this, if people did this one thing, I'd be out of half my job probably, but get your, <laughs> get your, get your guns dried out. That's the biggest thing is you, even if you think your gun after a morning of hunting, or even if there wasn't a heavy frost or heavy dew, your gun's wetter than you think it is, so whenever you get back to the lodge or back to the house or even if you're back to your camper, you know, get that gun out, get the action open, and get it someplace warm and dry and just let it dry out, and then wipe it down with, a you know, an oiled rag, make sure the bores are clean. But the number of times I've had to fix issues revolving around, I didn't think my gun was wet, and I put it in the case and left it in there on a three-day drive home. That's that's the root of many a woe.
3: Yeah, that's that's going to be a, a nasty experience on the on the backside of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
3: Yep. Good so. good tips, good advice, Dell. Thank you. It's um it's it's been a very entertaining and informative uh, show, and I appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to talk to Richard and I. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot. Glad enough. to sure. do it. No, terrible.
0: Okay, well, awesome show. That's it for this week. Uh, thanks, Dell. Thanks, Richard. And thank you, all listeners. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back next week in a brand new show, and again, probably going to double up on a couple episodes uh, from here on out. So we'll look forward to that, and I hope you do too. Until then, mind your backcast.